Today's scripture comes from John chapter 17, verses 10 to 26. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask these things, these for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Monica, for that wonderful reading. Let's now go to him asking for prayer asking for illumination. Father, we pray now that you would be with us and give us insight and wisdom. For through this insight, we have the hope of knowing not only who we are, not only what we are to do, but more importantly, whose we are. We are yours. God, we ask now that you would continue to speak to us. Lord, we are so grateful for how you have blessed us in our last Lord's Day and how you spoke through your servant there. But now, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us yet again and that in your word we would find true hope, true peace, and most importantly, true love. And we pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Our mission, our mandate, couldn't be more clear. The objective, more obvious. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. You've heard me say that before, and I'll say it again. Make disciples. God's will. Jesus' words. Spirit's work. It is the business of the church. Oh, I don't mean business in the commercial sense. I do mean business in the constructive sense. We, the church, are in the business of building up a body of believers. And in my position as pastor, naturally, I find myself needing to ask, because one day I'll have to answer, did we, NCF, make disciples? Did we create, did we cultivate an environment where people can learn about Jesus, live like Jesus, love 
with Jesus. In other words, are we a community filled with people who are truly, truly growing up, or are we simply and merely showing up? It's a question that a church worth its salt needs to ask itself periodically, and I find myself wanting to ask you that question today, and it is in perfect timing because today we kick off our annual Vision Sermon series, which we do at the beginning of every new year. Now, if you call NCF your spiritual home, you know by now we have a vision, a vision that encapsulates this mandate to make disciples and yet contextualize to our unique setting to where we can say not only do we obey this mission, but we own it in our own unique way. And if by chance today is your first Sunday or if you're completely clueless to what that vision may be, here it is now. The vision of NCF is as follows. NCF exists to bring hope to our broken world through men and women who grow up in the gospel by courageously display their allegiance to Jesus through their priorities, family, and work life, and their compassion to the poor, selflessly invest in personal relationships in order to share the gospel within their various social networks, what we call oikos, confidently engage culture with biblical wisdom in order to promote an inclusive community that flourishes Queens, New York, the world, and the next generation. This is our church's vision, and for the next five weeks, we're going to extrapolate and parse out the various core components of what this vision entails, not only so that we can be properly informed about this vision, but more importantly, we can be truly transformed by the word of God that is encapsulated in these statements. And today we begin with the first sentence, the first core component of that vision by zeroing in on the main idea of that first sentence, which is what? To grow up, to be spiritually mature. Today I want to talk about growing up spiritually, but the angle that I want to take it at is looking at the biggest hindrance to spiritual growth. What is the biggest hindrance to spiritual growth? which many of us will come to discover is something we all face, but more importantly, how do we overcome it? How do we overcome the biggest hindrance to spiritual growth, the biggest hindrance to growing up? So with that in mind, two, only two this morning, that I'd like to share with you today in today's message. The biggest hindrance to growing up, and then finally, overcoming the biggest hindrance to growing up. Let's begin. The biggest hindrance to growing up. Now, just in case you're not aware, the passage that was just read to us, in John 17, is a prayer of Jesus. In fact, it's one of his very last prayers that he lifts up to his Father in heaven, right before he is betrayed, arrested, and eventually killed, crucified on the cross for the sins of humanity. And indeed, whenever preachers preach from this text, the topic of the sermon is almost always on the topic of prayer. And how can you really fault that? Because As you read this text, it's almost hard to extrapolate any other topic that you could get when the main person in the passage, Jesus, is doing nothing but prayer. And so you're wondering, PJ, why are you using this passage as your platform to talking about spiritual growth when almost exclusively it seems to be focusing on and exemplifying prayer? Well, as I hope to show you in just a moment, as we do a little deep reading, we will come to discover that this passage has a lot to say about spiritual growth, such as the biggest hindrance to spiritual growth. In fact, let me read to you what Jesus tells us in his own words, what the greatest hindrance to our spiritual growth is, which is found in verse 15. What does he say? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Here, Jesus clearly identifies what the biggest hindrance to our spiritual growth is. And what is that? It's the evil one. 
right? Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know who he's referring to. Who's the evil one? It's the devil, right? The devil, you know, Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, the Morning Star, right? The God of this age. He, Jesus, is telling us that the greatest hindrance to our spiritual growth is the great enemy. It is the evil one. It is Satan. It is Lucifer. Now, with that established, you're probably wondering something. And if I could put your wonder in question form, it would probably go something like this. Uh, Pastor, if what you're saying is true, that the biggest hindrance to our spiritual growth is the devil, then why, oh, why does Jesus only refer to Satan almost in passing form in this one little verse that's kind of easily lost in the vast long prayer that he does. Because I don't know about you, Pastor. If I'm praying about a big hindrance in my life, that hindrance takes up 99.9% of my prayer. To where all that I'm praying about, all that I'm praying with issue in mind is the big hindrance. Why then does Jesus only slightly refer to Satan, the devil, in this tiny little verse if he is such a big hindrance to our spiritual growth? That's a great question. Let me try to answer it. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, and there we're going to look at what it says there in verse 8. Follow along. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Come on back. What is it saying? It's saying... That the reason why the devil is the biggest hindrance to our spiritual growth is not necessarily because of the devil himself. No, it's more because we allow the devil to have his way with us that manifests in us sinning against God. Look again to how John puts it. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil. No, he says he came to destroy the devil's work. So although technically the biggest hindrance to our spiritual growth is, yes, indeed, the devil, the reality is our willingness actually to be under the influence of Satan to where we are of the devil, which is another way of saying to be like him. That's the real hindrance. That's the bigger issue. That's the real problem. This is why Jesus doesn't spend the bulk of his prayer focusing on the devil. Because the real hindrance, the biggest hindrance to our spiritual growth is our willingness to be like the devil. To be of the devil. Which begs the question, what exactly do I mean to be like the devil? Oh, I know you could be a little bit smart with me and just parrot back what we just read in 1 John chapter 3. Uh, duh, pastor, didn't you just read it? It's when we sin. Oh, that's when we're like the devil. Oh, come on. I said we have to go deep, right? So let's go deep. And let me ask again. When, what does it mean to be like the devil? And the real question that I'm asking behind that is, what makes the devil the devil? What makes him tick? What is his MO, his, his modus operandi, his mode of operation? What makes the devil the devil? Well, according to Christian tradition, the one text of Scripture that perfectly encapsulates the way the devil operates, the way he thinks, and the way he functions, is recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 14, where starting in the 12th verse, we read, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. 
yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Pause right there, your attention. What does this passage tell us about Satan? It tells us the motivating drive that fuels Satan to be Satan, to be demonic, it's pride. Pride. Now, I know that you know that word pride. We all know that word. It's a familiar word that we have thrown around not only in the Bible, but also in our society. But what I've come to discover is that how one person will define pride is very different to how another person defines pride. Or how I think of pride, it might be different to how you think of pride. And so just to make sure that we're all on the same page, let me read to you a definition of pride that I came across that, in my opinion, is absolutely the best definition of pride of all. This is from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Take a listen to how he defines pride. He says, quote, Now what I want you to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive, is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. Pride is the conviction that gives you the assurance that you are the best of the best. Not best of the above average, not even best of the better. No, best of the best, that you are superior to the superior one. That is pride. So going back to the question at hand, what does it mean to be like the devil? It's when we are driven by this insatiable, competitive desire of wanting to be the best of the best. Again, what does it mean to be like the devil? It's when we are driven with the insatiable, competitive desire to be the best of the best. And sadly, we see this demonic attribute being manifested amongst the people of God, surprisingly, in the context of spiritual growth. If by chance you have... Uh, come over to our apartment and been to our home. If you haven't, please talk to me. We want to remedy that right away. But if you ever come to our home and you go down the hallway that connects my kitchen to the bedrooms, if you look over to the left side of the wall, the hallway, you'll notice little lines. And next to those lines, names and dates. And I imagine for those of you who are parents, somewhere in your house, the door jam behind the kitchen door, you have lines like that as well. And if you have, I'm also willing to bet that you've had a similar conversation like one that I've had not so long ago with my kids. Judah, my second born, my son, my first son, but the second of my five, one day after measuring him asked, Daddy, will I ever be taller than Nuna? Will I be taller than Kara, you know? Before I could even get a word in, my daughter, Kara, chimes in, Never! Judah, never! You'll never be taller than me! I'm always going to be older than you, and I will always be taller! Right? And then for the next three minutes, that felt like three centuries, an argument ensues, driven by a compare and compete attitude, where one of my children saw the growth of my other child as a threat to them, okay? Now, when I saw this, I was disgusted. I was angry, and I was ready to rebuke them. But before it came out, the Spirit of God rebuked me because there I came to discover I'm just like my children. My children are just like me, right? 
my children are just like me. I, too, many, many times have experienced the same sense of feeling threatened by the spiritual growth of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I, too, have felt threatened by the spiritual growth of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you think that as a pastor, I should be one of the last people who should ever struggle like this, I'm sorry to tell you, sorry to shatter your, your, your veneering image of what a pastor should be like, but we pastors struggle with that probably the most, especially when we're comparing ourselves to another pastor who might have a growing church with growing budgets, growing staff, growing attendees coming to their church. Growing compliments of how awesome their sermon was at the retreat last weekend. Right? A couple years ago, there was a pastor here in New York City who planted a church called Apostles Church. His name, J.D., I think, no, J.R. Vassar, excuse me. And he wrote a book called Glory Hunger. And in a moment of sobering honesty, he said these words in his book. Listen to what he says. Quote, I wanted God to do great things, but I wanted him to do those great things through me. I wanted everyone to know he did those great things through me. I wanted to stand out. I wanted to be told how gifted I was and patted on the back and praise for ministry success. You know, when I read these words, I felt like the author somehow gained access to the deepest thoughts in my mind because he said in those words exactly, and he captured perfectly my deepest struggles. I want God to do great things. But you see, I want him to do those great things through me. I mean, he can do great things through other people, so long as it's not greater than the great things that he's doing through me, to where I would have a thriving ministry. Otherwise, I feel absolutely threatened. And I'm willing to bet all of you at some point, constantly, as Christians, you feel the same way too. Listen. Don't think that just because you don't have the title pastor in front of your name that you don't feel threatened by the spiritual growth of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know why? Because this idea of a thriving ministry being a source of threat to you, ministry, remember, is not confined to what happens in the local church. The Bible tells us that there are other spheres of life that the Bible would say is ministry, such as your personal ministry to God that includes your physical health, that includes your emotional stability, your financial stewardship, your ethical living, right, as well as your sense of esteem. Then there is your ministry to your family, which involves your marriage, your parenting to your children, your relationship to your parents, and so forth. Then there's ministry of work, where you find your sense of significance in the calling that you have in life, your vocation, and the sense of significance that comes through the excellence of work that you try to achieve. And then finally, there is the ministry to the poor, where you serve the needs of others, where you're talking about physical needs, financial needs, counseling needs. So putting all this together, what does it mean? A thriving ministry, according to the Bible, could translate as a thriving marriage, a thriving career, a thriving sense of esteem That's, by the way, is very attractive, as much if not more attractive as someone who has a thriving, healthy, beautiful body, right? So Christian, with that said, let me ask you honestly, in all honesty, how do you feel when you see fellow brothers and sisters in Christ having a marriage that's thriving more, better than your marriage. How do you honestly feel when a fellow brother and sister in Christ is thriving in their bank accounts and not, yours is not thriving as well? 
How do you feel when the people they help is thriving better than the people that you're helping? How do you feel, right, when that person's sense of significance and, and esteem immunizes them from guilt and shame, but you keep struggling with guilt and shame and a sense of inferiority? How do you feel? I'll tell you how you feel. You feel threatened, right? Just like I feel threatened whenever I see another pastor friend of mine thriving in their ministry, thriving in their life. We all feel threatened. We feel threatened by the spiritual growth of our siblings in Christ just as my children feel threatened by the biological growth of their siblings in the flesh. And the reason for all this sense of threatenedness, it's pride. Pride. Wanting to be the best of the best. And it's because of this underlying compare and compete attitude, you'll never grow spiritually. Even though you're sacrificing so much, even though you're serving so diligently, you're not truly growing spiritually. Because how can you truly grow spiritually if you're like the devil? The devil is not growing spiritually. And yet, that compare and compete that drives him, his pride, could be the very same thing that's driving you to serve so valiantly on praise team or an oikos group or trying to be the best husband, the best parent, the best worker. All in the name of wanting to give glory to God. Christian, hear me when I say this. Just because you are thriving in ministry or you're trying to thrive in ministry doesn't necessarily mean you're truly spiritually mature. In fact, you can actually be more like Satan than anyone else. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're quite offended. You're offended because not necessarily you disagree with what I'm saying that sometimes we feel threatened by the spiritual growth of other people that we assume is manifesting in the cause of their ministries to thrive, whether it's their marriage or career or, yes, even in their church, right? Yes, you will acknowledge that, but you will not say, hey, but it's not because of pride, right? When I serve, when I sacrifice, it's because I truly love God. I want to have a great marriage because I want to honor God because I love God. I truly want to do well in my career because I want to glorify God because I love God. Yes, I want to serve faithfully in the church because I want to praise God because I love God. Right? In other words, over and over, you and I convince ourselves that the reason why we do what we do and try to be who we want to be is all because I love God. It's never about pride. It's never about trying to be the best of the best. It's never about being like the devil. Yeah, I hear you. But unfortunately, I have to disagree. And to tell you why, let me go to my final point, overcoming the biggest hindrance to growing up. As I mentioned before, Jesus does not spend hardly any time or focus any details about Satan whatsoever. Okay? And if you read this passage carefully, you can easily pick up what he does spend the bulk of his prayer on, what he does focus on with such explicit detail. And if you zero in, in verses 20 to 25, Jesus tells us exactly what it's all about, what his prayer is all about. What is it? It's about his relationship between himself and his Father in heaven. Okay? And as you carefully read 20 to 25, you'll notice that Jesus describes his relationship to the Father in a way to where it comes across as an unparalleled, thriving relationship of love. See for yourself as I read to you, starting in verse 20. This is Jesus talking to his father. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be in one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Hmm. Here, Jesus goes to great lengths describing in such explicit detail his love relationship with the Father, the Father's love for him and his love for the Father. And the question that naturally arises is, why is Jesus being so explicit? Huh? And not only that, a more important question as a follow-up is, why are we being exposed to it? You know, usually whenever people have a very intense, intimate relationship with each other, you know, they don't usually express or portray that relationship to a third party and in reality sometimes as third parties we don't want to see that right which is why we say uh tmi go get a room and yet jesus is almost scandalous by in vibrant hd color expressing the nature of his explicit love with the father the question is why does he do that why Well, let me begin to answer by quoting to you a theologian by the name of Major Ian Thomas. This is from his book, The Mystery of Godliness. Listen to what he says. There are those who have insisted that to be valid, every spiritual transaction between the believer and his Lord must be matched by some outward physical act, and that apart from that accompanying act, no worth can be attached to the inward spiritual transaction. Transaction, excuse me. End quote. What's he saying? He is saying this. He's saying a lot of things, but one thing that's very relevant to our discussion right now is this. Christians tend to believe, they tend to assume that one of the ways that God shows of how much he values and how much he delights our love for him is by him responding by blessing our ministry that we do for him out of love to where it would thrive and grow. In other words, we believe that our desire to love God is measured by how much God values it, delights in it, and appreciates it by him blessing the ministry we do out of motivation of our love for God. So if our ministry is growing, whether we're talking about our family ministry, our work ministry, our ministry of helping the poor and disenfranchised, and yes, even our church ministry, or even our ministry to grow in personal obedience, personal sanctification, right? If we are growing in this, that must be proof. Ah, yes, God takes True delight. He values my love for him. My love for him is precious. My love for him is is invaluable. But conversely, we also believe the opposite is true, right? If my ministry isn't thriving, if my marriage is falling apart, if my children don't love me, if I'm not doing well at work, no matter how hard I try, and I do all this because I love God, that must mean God doesn't appreciate my love as much as that other Christian who's in various ministries in life is going so well. God must not truly take delight in my love for him to where my love for him is not as precious, is not as beautiful, is not as 
delightful to him as that Christian so-and-so who seems to have everything going for them in every ministry that they do because they love God so much. I guess my love for him is not as precious. It's not as beautiful, right? And it's because of this thinking Jesus says what he does in 20 to 26. And to help you better understand what I'm getting at, read again what he says in 22 to 23. What does he say? You, uh, excuse me, where is it? Oh, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are in one. And then listen to what he says. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Did you catch it, Christian? Did you hear what Jesus just said? Jesus just said in his own words that if you are in Christ, if you have faith in Jesus, if you are a Christian, God the Father loves you as much, identical to his love for Jesus. God loves you as much as he loves his own perfect eternal son. He says it in his own words. You've loved them even as you've loved me. Or as another translation puts it, you love them as much as you love me. God the Father loves you as much as he loves his son. Now I know some of you are hearing this and it's kind of cold comfort, right? Because you're thinking to yourself, Pastor, that's not the issue. That's not the problem. Yes, I'm so thankful that the Father loves me as much as he loves the Son, but that's not the issue. The issue is, I want my love for him to be as precious, to be as wonderful, to be as valuable as that Christian over there loves you. God, what's the point of you loving me this much, and yet my love for you doesn't seem to be as important, doesn't seem to be as valuable, doesn't seem to be as significant or precious to you as that other Christian over there. I want my love for you to be just as important. I want it to matter just as much. Oh, Christian, if that's what you're struggling with, you need to focus again to what he says in 23. What does he say there? Excuse me, 22, 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Here's a question. What is this glory that Jesus is referring to? What is this glory that the Father gives to the Son, and then the Son, Jesus, gives to us? What is this glory referring to? One theologian by the name of Michael Reeves, who is meditating on this very chapter, gives us the answer when he writes this, quote, Just as the Father decided to include us in his love for the Son, to share it with us. So the son, Jesus, chose to include us in his love for the father. He delights to echo his father's love back to him, and that is what it is to be besides God, to image him, to be his child. We have been created that knowing his love, we might love the Lord our God. What is the glory the father gives the son? You know what it is? The glory the father gives to the son is the uh, honorable acknowledgement. It's the delightful acceptance of Jesus' love for the Father. And that glory, according to Jesus, he now gives to you, okay? In other words, Jesus' love for the Father becomes your love for the Father. My love for God is not in any way superior to your love for God. Your love for God is not in any way inferior to that Christian's love for God, even though there are various ministries in life, family, 
work is thriving better than yours. You know why? Because it all comes from the same source. Your love for God, my love for God, Tim Keller's love for God, Billy Graham's love for God, all comes not from their own hearts. They don't originate their love for God. It comes from the Son. You know how it says in John 15, abide in me, abide in my love? What does that mean? Hold on to that thought as I try to help you understand what I'm getting at with kind of a silly illustration. Here's a question. Do Big Macs in Pineville, North Carolina, taste better than Big Macs in Flushing, New York? What do you think? Do Big Macs in Pineville, North Carolina, taste better or taste worse than the Big Macs here in Flushing, New York? You know what the answer is? No. They taste the same. And I can personally attest, since I grew up in Pineville, North Carolina, I eat many Big Macs there, and I eat many Big Macs here. Probably going to eat another one after service today. (laughs) Happy Meals, the kids, they're addicted to it. It's like crack. Why is it that if you go to a McDonald's that's huge and thriving, has tons of customers, the Big Macs there taste just as good as that obscure town McDonald's that hardly has any customers, it's very small, it's not thriving, but the Big Macs there, it tastes just the same. It tastes just as deliciously exquisite. Did you know, (laughs) did you know that in order to get a franchise at McDonald's, you can only do so if you abide by the policies and procedures of how they operate their business, which means all the Big Macs everywhere taste the same. They all taste equally good and delicious. doesn't matter if it comes out of a huge, thriving, you know, multiple-story McDonald's or if it comes out of a very corner, tiny shed McDonald's where there's only like one employee. Why? Because they abide. When Jesus says in John 15, abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in my love. Who, what is he talking about? What love is he referring to? My love? My love for the Father. If you stay in me, if you are in me in faith, right, it becomes yours. My love for the Father becomes your love for the Father. Right? My love for the Father becomes your love for the Father. Here's the thing, Christian. It doesn't matter if your family isn't thriving as well as that other Christian's family that's thriving. It doesn't matter, Christian, if your career isn't as successful as your peers' career. Even though both of you are trying to work to the glory of God out of your love for God, it doesn't matter if your church isn't as successful as that other Christian's church. Because the underlying love that is inspiring you to do those ministries, they're all equally delightful to the Father. You see, Jesus, in a sense, came to franchise his love for the Father for all Christians to do. Does that make sense? Jesus came to share his love for the Father to where it becomes your love for the Father. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't manifest in a certain kind of context because the Father takes delight in the love that compels you to do ministry, not the outcome of the ministry. Do you see? And when you understand this, when you grasp this, you know what that's going to do? If you're one of those Christians where your marriage is thriving and your family is wonderful and the career that you're pouring into is just doing great and you're just getting promoted and getting raises, never ever can you say, oh, clearly this is a sign that God values my love for him more 
than that person over there who's not doing so well. Clearly, my love for God is more precious to him than that person. You can never say that. But you know what you can also not say for those of you who are not doing so well? Maybe at home, maybe at work, maybe at church, maybe in your own private life. You can never say, oh, my love for God must not be as important or as valuable to him as that Christian over there, as that brother at NCF who's just doing so well. You can't say that. Because it all comes, the love that compels you to serve, that compels you to do ministry, all comes from the same source, and they're all equally delightful. Remember? Big Macs taste the same everywhere. They're all equally delicious. All these things. And NCF, let me tell you this. God delights in you. God delights in this church. Yeah, your pastor may not be well-known. This church may not have huge staff or a huge budget. Oh, but I am convinced that he loves us as much as he loves whatever name that you want to put in, whatever cool, hip church is hitting social media now. But also, listen, married couples, if you're not doing well, know this. God loves you, and he is for your marriage as much as he is to those wonderful couples who go on honeymoon every other year, who renew their vows every five months, you know. He is for you as much as he is for that couple. Those of you who are struggling in your careers right now and you see your peers way ahead, even though you guys both started at the same time, look, God is for you and he takes great delight. And oh, how precious your work is to him as much as that other peer of yours who is doing what you wish you could, but you're not yet. Maybe never will. Do you know that? Do you know that God takes delight in your love for him regardless of how kind of fruitfulness comes out of it? Because the reason why your love for him is precious isn't because of the fruit that comes out of it, but because of where your love for him comes from. It comes from the son's love to the father. See, that's what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that God the son became Jesus Christ So out of his love for his father, he could do a ministry that no one else can do. He could save sinners from their sins. And in response to that, the father gave his son glory, honor, in response to his son's love for him. And if you are in Christ, if you make him Lord of your life, that glory is now your glory. Do you get that? The delight the father has in his son's love for him becomes your love for him. And you know what that means practically? It means you never get threatened by anyone else's spiritual thriving. You never get bitter. You never get envious. Yeah, they live in a bigger house. Yeah, their marriage seems to be fine. Their kids seem to be more well-behaved than mine. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Because the underlying love that compels you to want to serve faithfully it's just as delightful to him as those people's love for the father as well see that is how you overcome the biggest obstacle to spiritual growth because in that moment you're not like the devil you're like jesus because you're holding on to the source of power that jesus did for us when he came to be our savior he loved the father for us he came To not only display, not only to model, but to produce the love of God that we could now have, that we now do have. 
where now you are a franchise of the Son's love for the Father. All you need to do is to abide in Him. Are you abiding in Him? When you understand that, that is how you quench and kill this compare and compete attitude where you're no longer threatened by the spiritual growth of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, you champion them. You pray for them. You say, thank you, God, that they're doing so well. Thank you, God, that their marriage, yes, yeah, doing better than mine, but praise God. Oh, their church is doing well, way better than us. They don't have the same struggles. Praise God. No more bitterness, no more envying, but true delight in being each other's cheerleaders. I wonder, can we be that way with each other? Where there would never be any demonic compare and compete pride driving us to build up this body. You know, one other practical takeaway, and I'm going to end it with this, that we need to acknowledge, is that when you really grasp what I'm telling you today, you will be able to see your struggles in new perspective. What do I mean by that? What I mean by it is that Yes, it is true. Your love for the Father is not original to you. It does not originate in you, right? It comes from the Son. But that doesn't mean that your love for God is simply a clone of another Christian's love for God to where basically carbon copies and make no distinction. No. One of the things you have to understand is that God puts you in a certain place, in a context with unique struggles and difficulties so that you can uniquely manifest the Son's love for the Father in your setting. So that you get to do something that no other Christian will do. So that as you live out the Son's love of the Father in your love for the Father, when God the Father sees your love for Him, He doesn't just see Jesus. He really sees you. To where you get to uniquely live out and apply the Son's love for the Father. Do you understand that? You see, when I say that we receive the Son's love for the Father to where that's our love, I'm not simply saying that God just sees Jesus. He sees you through Jesus. And when you grasp that, you know what that's going to do? It's going to make you focus and to stay faithful in staying in that difficult marriage. It's going to motivate you to stay faithful in living out your sanctified calling in whatever career you're currently in now, rather than just constantly daydreaming with bitterness. Oh, I wish I had this job, or I wish I was married to that kind of person, or I wish I didn't have these kind of shame issues in my life, or I wish I didn't have this kind of personal history or baggage. Why couldn't my life turn out like that person? No. You get to live out uniquely, exclusively, Jesus' love for the Father that no one else can. Do you get that? If you do, now you're ready to grow. Now you're ready to be a blessing. My wonder, my question is, do you get that? Do you get that? I'd like to end my message by asking some next steps for you to consider. First, if you're here investigating Christianity, let's take this time to make yourself right with God. Accept Christ as Lord and Savior and receive and abide in his love for the Father and make it your own by being united with him in faith. Number two, take some time this week and ask yourself, do I feel threatened? at the spiritual growth of other Christians' ministries, whether it be in their personal life, their family life, their church life, their work life, their ability to help others. You know, one way you can answer that is when you see fellow brothers and sisters thriving in life. Do you rejoice or do you feel bitter and envious? If it's the latter, it's take this time now to go to him in repentance because that's what we all need to do constantly because of that. Finally, pick a member in your Oikos group to share your struggles. Pray for one another during Oikos group meetings throughout this week, maybe throughout the year.
Let's pray. Father, help us now to understand what it means to grow up in the gospel. Father, you call us to be disciples who make disciples. But Lord, we know that one of the biggest hindrance that gets in the way of that is the enemy. How he causes us to just be filled with such bitterness and envy because we are so driven by a compare and compete mindset. Father, have mercy on us. Give us grace and mercy so that we can truly be a community that comes together and who are united in oneness out of our common love for you that originates in your son's love for you. God, we pray that we would truly grow so that we can go out with the hope of the gospel. Would you enable us to do that now so that we can thrive with such joy and thankfulness? Hear us now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.